Well, a lot of hard names. So today's sermon title is going to be Chariots, Priests, and Kings. And in case you're wondering, this is not about a, a sequel to Game of Thrones. Um, it's just the, the visions that we're dealing with this morning. And so the beginning, we see these vision of these chariots. Then in the back half, we see this command regarding um, priests and kings. And so it begins with this idea of Zechariah's got this vision, and there are these two bronze mountains. And I, I kind of picture them staggered a little bit, right? These two giant bronze mountains, and then these four chariots. Just imagine like one horse with a small chariot that kind of someone stands on, just four in a row coming out from between these two mountains. And so the one of the thoughts on the mountains, why, why these bronze mountains, what does that have to do with anything? One of the ideas there could be that on the original temple in Jerusalem, um, there were two massive bronze pillars that were kind of the central structural units um, of the temple. And so maybe it was kind of a, a reference to that. Also, bronze would have been associated as a, a military-type color, which makes sense with the, the chariots coming out as well. Um, but you see these four chariots coming out from in between these two bronze mountains. And these chariots symbolize kind of an invasion. And you may recall in Zechariah chapter 1, this, this book of Zechariah began with the vision of four horsemen. And these, this seems to be very different. These aren't, the horses are a different color. Um, instead of just being a single horse with a guy on it, this is a chariot. There's a lot of differences here. But they are related in some sense because in the beginning of Zechariah, if you remember, the first vision he had was God sends out these four horsemen to the four corners of the earth, right? They, they go out and patrol, and they're basically sentries. They go out and they look, and they bring back a report. And the report they bring is that, hey, everything is at peace. And if you remember Zechariah and the angel, to them that's bad news. When this, these horsemen come back and say, hey, we patrolled the world, everything is at ease, at ease, everything is at peace. And they're disturbed by that because what they are wanting and longing for is for God to stir things up and shake things up. Because remember, at this time when this is written, God's people are in exile, right? That Israel used to be this mighty powerhouse kingdom, right, on top of the world. Now their city has been plundered, their temple has been destroyed. They've been carried off away from their country, away from their land, into exile as slaves. And now they've been sent back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And they're, they're wanting and hoping for the, the scales of power to shift back in their favor. They've been stalled out. They've stopped building the temple because of the, the influences and threats around them. Things are stalled out, and they're wanting God to shift the scales back in their favor. And, and as if in answer to that, four different horses, different colors, but pulling a chariot, which is would make them think not of just like a century, but of someone going out to conquer, to, to do something, to take action. God is answering that piece by now saying, I am shaking things up. Here's what is happening. And there's, the four colors actually do correspond to the, um, the four horsemen of the apocalypse in the book of Revelation, and where each color kind of has a, a representation, a, um, a symbolism with that color. And so the black one goes to the north, and the black horse would have been a symbol of grief and death. So the, the grief and death chariot is going towards Babylon. God is saying he's, he's bringing grief and death to the city of Babylon. And then the white one coming in behind it 
um, as one to conquer. And then you've got one going to the south, the dappled horse, which represents pestilence, going to Egypt. And so those are kind of the two main threats against God's people, Babylon in the north, Egypt in the south. And God is saying, I'm sending this military power to conquer and go after these powers that are oppressive to you. Um, and so you've got this idea that that's happening. And Zechariah chapter 6, verse 8, it says, Then he cried to me, Behold, those who go to the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north. That they're going out to shake things up and put God's spirit at rest, that God would accomplish his purposes in the north. And so what I want to look at is what that meant below the surface. So that's kind of the vision. So what did that mean to Zechariah? And how does that apply to us? And so on, a, on a, the broadest level we could say is this, is that God's power, though hidden, is great. God's power, though hidden, is great. That if you were to look at Israel's situation... They did not look like they were in a position to be making military threats. <laughs> they, they were living in rubble. They, they weren't even strong and mighty enough to rebuild the temple that the king who was in charge of them allowed them and gave them permission to return to the city in Bel. They're still living under another country's rule and dominion. There's nothing about their situation and their people at that time that would make them look like any sort of credible military or power threat to anyone around them. And yet here's this vision of these four chariots symbolizing conquering and death, that God is stirring things up and tipping the scales back in Israel's favor. And so we're going to look at three kind of sub-points, ideas under this idea that God's power, though hidden, is great. And the first one is this, is that God's kingdom is a global influence. So you can imagine this would have been hard to accept that in their day, they are not thinking of themselves as a global influence. They're thinking themselves as a remnant, as rabble, as just people who are cast aside. They're just trying to survive. They're just hoping they don't get wiped out from the face of the earth entirely. It's probably their greatest aspiration at this time outside of God intervening. And so there's a, there's a commentary that a lot of us have been reading as we've been preaching through Zechariah. Um, by this guy, R.D. Phillips. And I want to I wanna read a, a quote from him. It's kind of a long quote, but he, he really helps us see the situation they're in and why this vision would have seemed so fanciful to them, this idea that they would be a conquering military power. Um, and then he relates that back to the church. And so let's look at this. It says of Israel, they were small in numbers, weak in every measurable way, militarily, economically, politically, and of absolutely no significance on the world stage of that day. Meanwhile, we turn our eyes to the north, that's where Babylon is, and see the great city-states of Mesopotamia, now organized under the imperial hand of Persia. The comparison is laughable. God's people are so small, weak, and insignificant. The powers of the north, so great, mighty, and important. If we look to the south, we see great Egypt with its pyramids and sprawling cities along the Nile. The same can be said. Then he relates that to the status of the church as a global influence. And he says this, Is this not a perfect picture of the church within the world? 
Christians are not that numerous when it comes to things that make, the, that make for worldly power. We are woefully empty-handed. In many places today, Christians are a tiny minority. They meet in barns in outlying districts, in secret houses, fleeing a hostile authority. The state has might, money, and media. Compared to these things, the church is weak and vulnerable. It's crazy when you try to think about the church with our lack of centralized leadership, our lack of organization, our lack of military might, right? Our lack of what we would consider power and influence on a worldly level to think about how the church has shaped and transformed the world as we know it. And this text reminds us to trust in God's hidden power. Think for a minute with me about um, the Jews at that time. Now, just real quick, show of hands. Raise your hand if you, if you know some, if you yourself are, you know someone who is Jewish. Anyone? Most of you have maybe probably met someone who's Jewish, right? Now, I want you to raise your hand if you've ever met a Babylonian. Think about that for a second. This promise that, that God's people would endure and influence and shape the world as a global powerhouse seemed silly at the time. When you look at Babylon and their might and their power, but what has happened? Babylon now is a, is a city of ruins. There's barely even any ruins left. It's in modern-day Iraq, and there's no longer a city there. It's, it's the, the kingdom, the empire is gone. Think about that in regards to the church. Like, if you were to drop in at any point in history in the last 2,000 years, you would have pointed to a couple nations that have changed as it's gone on and looked at that nation and gone, that thing is there for good. <laughs> at one point it was Persia. Then it was Greece. Then it was Rome. And if you were to drop in at any of those points, you would look at that empire, that nation, that city-state, and go, wow, that's it. No, that thing is not going in here. No one can conquer this people. This empire is going to last through the ages. There's no way that anything is going to happen to that empire. It's there to stay. And yet if you were to look back at the last 2,000 years, every one of those nations you would point to is in the history books. But here we are, God's people, the church covering the earth like the waters cover the seas. And we see in that this testimony, this evidence that God comes through on his promise. That the church, though, though seemingly on the outside, on the surface level, weak, insignificant, ill-resourced, lack of power, lack of centralized leadership, has shaped the world as we know it far beyond any government, empire, or authority. And it reminds us, and on a micro level, to trust that God is working in, in hidden ways with a power that transcends anything we can see with our eyes. The psalmist talked about this in Psalm chapter 27. Listen to this. He said, The Lord is my might and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and my foes, 
It is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. I want you to listen to this prophecy by Isaiah regarding the rebuilding of Jerusalem after it's been destroyed and how God would actually use these these mighty emperors who seemed like they were the ones in charge, like they were the ones on top, specifically Cyrus of Persia, how God would actually use him as kind of a a chess piece that behind the scenes God was controlling all along to accomplish his purposes. Listen to this. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins, who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. And he goes on to talk about Cyrus, and he says this, who says of Cyrus my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. This prophecy that the Cyrus, king of Persia, would, would be part of God's instrument, though, he was, though he's earlier spoken of as someone who is going to be punished for his ill treatment of God's people, God simultaneously prophesies, I'm actually going to use him to send you back to rebuild the city and reestablish my visible presence in Jerusalem. So I think what this encourages us with is when it, when it seems to our eyes like the church is, is waning and failing, when it seems like the church is on a, a downward trajectory and is being cast aside and is decreasing in significance, that God's power working through his church, though hidden, is quite strong. I don't know if Many of you guys in this room are my age or around my age, and you know how it is when like, you, you start to hear yourself think the things you heard your parents say that you thought were so silly, right? You start to look among the younger generation and think, oh man, see what's going on in the world and kids these days, you know, I just, I just don't have much hope for what's going to happen in the next 50 years. You know, you start to kind of have those thoughts, and everyone has thought that for 2,000 years right? For 2,000 years, people have been, have been worried about how the, the governments of this world and those who look powerful on the surface have set themselves against the church. And it's a reminder for us that our hope in God's people and God accomplishing his purpose is not dependent on any government. That our hope is not dependent on who's in the White House, who's in Congress, what's going on here, what's going on with that. Like, That is not where our hope rests, that God's power transcends and is beyond all of those things. That like an earthquake on the ocean floor, unseen and unheard, results in a catastrophic flood. God is using the hidden faithfulness of his people to shape the course of history in the world as we know it. It also speaks to the idea that God avenges his people, right? That They were longing to be avenged because of how they'd been harmed. And then God says, I'm going to do that. You can trust me with that. You remember in Zechariah chapter 2, he said, He who touches you, Israel, touches the apple of my eye. That he who harms you is stirring me up against them. And again, we think, where 
is Babylon now. This promise that God would protect his people and preserve his people and tip the scales in their favor maybe it seems so fanciful at the time, and yet here we are as the church, and Babylon is no more. And since God has promised to, to judge those who harm the church, we don't have to. I'm going to read another quote by Phillips, and we'll kind of unpack this idea. He says this, Christians are not the judge of our unbelieving neighbors, but it is helpful for us to know that God will judge them on our behalf. God will vindicate us, turning our shame into glory, our turmoil into peace, and our loss into reward. Listen, this enables us to love those who hate us, confidently leaving judgment to the Lord. Now, I know that there's some sense in which we read quotes like that where we talk about God's vengeance against those who persecute his people and we think, well, man, that's just that's a little bit harder to relate to maybe for some of us living in America, right? Because we aren't being persecuted at anywhere near the level of what we see our brothers and sisters going through in different parts of the world, right? And so we think, well, I don't know how really applicable that is, but listen, all of us have been wronged by someone. I, mean, I guarantee every person in this room at some point, whether it was recently or in the distant past, whatever, at some point, you've been wronged and hurt by someone. And in our flesh, when that happens, our, our temptation is to, is to take vengeance, right? It's to, it's to fire back. It's to push back. It's to, to strike back against them, to even the scales, to take matters into our own hands and make sure they get what's coming to them, to seek revenge and retribution. Here's the thing that... There's a place for some of that, right? There's a place for, if we've been wrong, for seeking reconciliation and restoring a relationship. There's, there's a place for seeking amends at different times. But oftentimes, when there's not a clear avenue for that to happen or it becomes evident that that's not going to happen, we can resign ourselves to the fact that I don't have to bring justice to that situation, God is going to do that. I don't have to right the wrong that is done to me. I don't have to tip the scales back in my direction and make things fair again. I can entrust that God is the judge that will do those things. In fact, when I've, when I've talked to people who've been hurt in that way, oftentimes that's kind of the thought cycle, right? Is at first it's like, I want to strike back. I want to seek revenge. I want to seek retribution. I want to lash back at that person. But then I start to think, I want that person to get what they deserve. And then I think, do I really want to get what I deserve? I mean, if we want everything to be fair and just here, do, do I want God to treat me in accordance with how I've acted and what I've deserved? And we begin to realize, no, we're recipients of a great amount of mercy where God has withheld from us the retribution and punishment that we deserve. And we begin to think, well, maybe I can trust God to be merciful and desire mercy to be bestowed upon that person just as it was me. And, and at the very least, I can begin to say, you know what, I've done what I can, and I trust the righteous judgment of God to run its course in this situation and throughout the world that I don't have to bear the burden of righting those wrongs. Paul said it like this in Romans, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. 
To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And another sub-observation we could make under this idea that God's power, though hidden, is great, is just the idea that belief in God's hidden power is what enables us to follow Jesus. Not I think again about their situation. I imagine Zechariah getting this, getting these visions, right? God is giving them these visions of hope that this, this, this temple is going to be rebuilt. The city is going to be rebuilt. Things are going to be restored. Things are leaning back towards you guys' favor. Things are going to work out well for you in this effort. He gets these vision, and I, I imagine he sees all this. He's in his house or tent or whatever, and he's like, okay, cool. And then he walks outside and he opens his eyes, and what does he see? Not a lot of evidence that's looking real good, right? He sees rubble. He sees a mess. And he sees a bunch of people who've just kind of given up on God's purpose. That, that they've initially stepped out to follow God in obedience and to trust him by leaving the city of Babylon where they had houses, where they were comfortable, and coming to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. But after being there for so long, their focus is just kind of shifted, and they're no longer set about restoring God's kingdom and his influence and his, his visible presence through, presence through the rebuilding of the temple and the city. And they've just kind of said, yeah, we're just going to live here and bide our time and Call it good. Because they they quit believing that God was going to come through on his promise. So they stopped giving themselves to that. They stopped pouring their their time and their relationships and their energy and their their resources into God's purposes. And I couldn't help but think about how tempting it is for us to get to that same spot. It's so tempting for us to Christians to, to kind of buy in initially and go, yeah, I'm going to be about God. I'm going to be about his kingdom. I'm going to follow him to this point. But then as things have gone on, we start to just kind of live our normal lives and maybe focus less of our time and our energy and resources on the things God is doing, taking his gospel to all nations, growing the church, making disciples, and we We've kind of just started living our lives and building our own houses, doing our own things. And we followed God into this place, but now the bulk of our focus is just kind of on living my life in this new context God has put me in. Doing the things I want to do, pursuing the things I want to pursue with the people I want to pursue them with. And it made me think of 1 Corinthians 15 when Paul says, If Christ, we have hope in this life only. We are of all people most to be pitied. That, and I wonder if people would say that of us. Like, People would have said that about them, right? These guys that are, they've left their homes in Babylon where they were comfortable, where there were tons of resources, and they could have everything they wanted was at their fingertips, right, in this city. And they've left to kind of live in tents and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. If that promise was a hoax... They're to be pitied, right? If, if, if this promise that God is going to restore the city and rebuild the temple through them, if that doesn't come through, if that's a lie, these guys have just wasted their lives on this pointless venture. And that, 
that ought to be true of us, right? It ought to be able to be said of us that if Jesus did not rise from the grave, that our entire life is just a hoax and a waste. But are we investing ourselves in God's kingdom to the degree that that would be said of us, that people would say, that guy just threw his life away on this thing that didn't come to fruition? Are we invested at that level? Do we believe in God's hidden power that God really is doing this thing of drawing all nations to himself, of sending the church out to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, that he's going to accomplish that purpose to make his name known to all nations and that when he does, the end will come and Jesus will return and restore all things and reward those tenfold who have given up lands and houses and relationships for the sake of that kingdom. If we really believe that, it will change how we live our lives. And we will invest as much as we can into his purposes and his kingdom. So that's the the vision we get of the the chariots and kind of what that means. And we're going to move on now to to verse 9 where we see the second vision, more more of a command than a vision really. But God speaks to Zechariah and he says this, And the word of the Lord came to me, this is Zechariah 6, 9, 6, 10 now, Take from the exiles... Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold, and make a crown, and set it on the head of... And let's, let's stop right there. So, these guys have come back recently, like they're kind of coming in waves. Some guys have recently come from Babylon, they've brought some, some gifts, some treasures, some gold and stuff. And he says, go to those guys, take what they've brought, make a crown, and set it on the head of... And who gets the crown? Who gets the crown? The king, right? I mean, some sort of government authority. Now, Israel didn't really have a king at this time, but they did have Zerubbabel, who was kind of like their governor. He was kind of considered the, um, the governmental authority of their time, kind of standing in for the king in this sense. And Israel always had this kind of separation of powers, right? On the one hand, they, they had the king, who is a guy who's like has a lot of military authority, if you claim his name to another nation, that means something. Oh, you're one of King David's men? I better back off, right? The, the king provides protection. He provides resources. He provides peace. He provides a sense of, of power and authority for God's people. God's people also had a priesthood, and at the top of that priesthood was, was the high priest. Now, the high priest did not have any sort of governmental authority. If, if he were to go to another nation, he would, he would just be another guy, right? He would not be respected in that sense. But what the priest did is that their whole life was devoted to helping people come back to God, be restored in relationship with God, pursue God, be in a good spot with him, to make intercession with them, to perform sacrifices for them. Like their whole job was to, they didn't even have their own land, right? They were of this tribe that they just basically shared what everyone else had so they could focus on serving the people as priests. And one was not supposed to act like the other. Like the temptation of priests was to kind of be jealous of the king or other people and want to kind of have more true, what they would call true military type authority. And, and we often see the priests in the Old Testament, or sorry, the kings being jealous of the priests and trying to do the things that the priests do. We see Saul doing that and then God rejects him and replaces him with King David. 
We see this guy named Uzziah doing that, trying to play the role of priest, and God strives him with leprosy. Because in general, it's just, he's trying to tell them you shouldn't try to be someone you're not able to be. When you, when you try to do something you're not able and qualified to do, this doesn't work well for you. And I, I know this from experience. I think we all do, right? Um, I specifically remember a time when I was, um, I was with Lance at a, I don't remember what it was exactly, or some sort of, I don't know if you were speaking at or recruiting for IGO, but some kind of like a youth retreat. There were, you know, four or 500 people there, and we're just hanging out after the event's over, talking to the guys who are leading it. We're about to head home. And um, I'd just gotten back on an IGO trip to China, and I'd been there for like six weeks, and um, you know, I'd just gotten back, and we were just kind of sitting around talking about that. I was sharing how that went, and this guy just walks in. He's like, hey, guys, man, I know this is a long shot, but uh, does anyone speak Chinese? And he's like, we're like, what do you mean? He goes, well, there's this, there's this kid here that he's this Chinese kid, but like, we don't know where his parents are. We think he might be lost. We could tell what's going on. So of course, like, everyone looks at me like, well, you just got back from China, you know? And I'm thinking, yeah, yeah, I just got back from China, you know? Like, I got this. And like, guys, it's okay. I got, you know, so I start walking. And as I'm walking down the hall, I realize like, man, the only thing I know how to say in Chinese is like, where's the restroom? And you're not a real man unless you've climbed the Great Wall of China. So I'm like, I don't know how this is going to help me. I'm going to walk up to this kid and be like, hey, buddy, uh, listen, you're not a real man unless you've climbed the Great Wall, right? That's what they taught us in our classes that we took. So I get up to the kid and it just becomes evident that like, I'm actually of zero help here, right? Like this is not going to be a benefit to me or him or anyone, but we try to be someone we're not, right? The kings and the priests would often do this. It didn't go well. And here's why. God saw in his sovereignty during the Old Testament times that no, no one man was fit to carry all those burdens on his shoulders. In fact, originally, God didn't even want them to have a king. He wanted them to be, just be ruled by a, a plurality of judges. But they said, no, we want to be like the other nations. Give us a king. And God said, fine. God did not intend for one person to be the head of his people because he knows that in our sin nature, we're just, there's no one man equipped to bear that kind of burden and to fill that kind of role. So there were priests, there were kings, there were prophets, the leadership was divided up. But then all through the Old Testament, you've got these, you've got these whispers, these little veiled instances like this of a priest king because here's what happens. He says, take that crown and set it on the head, not of Zerubbabel, the one that would be king. But he said, set that crown on the head of Joshua, the high priest. And Zechariah and anyone listening to that vision would have been thinking, what? No, Joshua, he's not the king. He's not the governor. He's the high priest. He doesn't, he doesn't get the crown, right? He gets, he gets the robe. Set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, which again, remember that from a few weeks ago, the branch would have been the heir of David, the, the messianic king-type figure. It's calling this priest a king. Your name is the branch, for he shall branch out from this place and shall build the temple of the Lord. If you know the story, Zerubbabel, the king, is the one building the temple, the priest is the one ministering to the people along the way. So this priest, this high priest, Joshua, is called, given a crown, referred to as the branch, and told that he's going to be the builder. 
This would have been blasphemous to them, this idea that the priest would act as the king. But it's this whisper, it's this little nugget of prophecy that what God is doing is he's going to raise up someone who is both priest and king. You see another example of this in the book of Genesis with Abraham, that Abraham is, he's out, he's, he's um, kind of wandering at this time in his life, and he runs across this guy named Melchizedek. And it's talked about him in the book of Hebrews as well. And Melchizedek is king of Salem, so, which means peace. So he's this guy who's seen as king of peace. He's a king. And Abraham also gives him a tenth of what he has, which is what the Israelites would do for the priests to take care of them. So he's treated and seen as both a king and a priest. And the author of Hebrews points to him as kind of a, a foreshadowing of Jesus. This one person who would bring the two offices of high priest and king together in one and fulfill them in a ways that the priests and the kings of the Old Testament never could. I'm often reading these passages so thankful that we live on this side of the cross, right? Just imagine being an, an Israelite. And God has made all these promises to you about how he's going to protect you, how he's going to deliver you, how he's going to rescue you from the nations around you in a physical way, but also from your sin in a spiritual way. But he keeps sending you people to do it that fail. Okay, I'm going to send you Saul. Well, Saul starts trying to act like a priest, so no. I'm going to send you David. Oh, yes, David. Closest thing we ever had to a great king. But one day commits a terrible moral failure and sends one of his citizens out in the front lines to kill him to try to cover his tracks. This is your guy, God? This, this is the guy we're supposed to put our hope in? The priests get greedy and start swindling the people. It's like every leader God keeps giving them to, to fulfill these promises keeps failing. But there's these whispers of, of a man who would come to be both priest and king in a way that transcends anything they've ever seen. And that's where we get Jesus. Notice that, notice that the, the king is it's not like it's not like Zerubbabel is king, and he's given the offices and, and titles and, and um, authority of a priest, but it's the priest who then becomes and is given the authority of a king. Listen to this from Philippians about Jesus. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the death, to death, even death on a cross. If we would say anything about Jesus' life and who he resembled, it would be that of a priest, right? His life was given in service to people, leading them to God, guiding them back to God into a right relationship with them, empathizing with the people, right? He looks a lot more like a priest than a king in his life on earth. Therefore, because of that, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every tongue will bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess, every knee will bow, that Jesus Christ is Lord. That the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. 
Jesus is given and exalted to the office of that of a king by serving as the perfect priest and sacrifice. In Hebrews chapter 4, he says it this way. Think, before we go there, let me mention this. Think about if you had a problem in that day, under you had your priest and your king, if you had like a, a personal spiritual problem, a struggle you were having, you would never go to the king, right? Because the king doesn't have time for that sort of stuff. His job is on a macro level, protecting people, setting the borders at rest, things like that, right? The king is, is a military presence. His job is not to minister to you as an individual for the problem you're having with your in-laws, right? You don't go to the king for that. The priest, on the other hand, not probably won't invoke much protection from you from foreign enemies, but his whole job is to counsel for you, be there for you, bring you back to God. The two are married in Jesus. Listen to this. Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. So Jesus is the perfect priest. But he goes on, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So we see Jesus come to fulfill these promises of being both the priest and the king that God's people always wanted and never had. I think that's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. When we look back and see the failures, the, the, the kings and priests in the Old Testament, it can't help but make us so thankful and blessed for the role and fulfillment of those things coming to fruition in Jesus. And I hope that this text will spur us on to see him and worship him more because of that. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for this text and for... I do thank you that we live, for whatever reason, by your sovereignty, you've put us our lives today on this side of the cross to, to enjoy and, and, and see the fulfillment of all these promises, all these whispers we see in the Old Testament, that we get to embrace and see those in the person of Jesus. And God, I pray that you would help us to trust him and cling to him in all things that as our priest we would go to him knowing, knowing of his empathy and understanding towards us because he's walked in our shoes, but also knowing that because of what he's done on our behalf that we can boldly approach your throne and come to Jesus as king without fear or hesitation because of the sacrifice he made. We pray in his name. Amen.